Book Three, Chapter Five of Les Miserables, translated by Isabel F. Hapgood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Williams. Les Miserables by Victor Hugo, Book Three, in the year eighteen seventeen. Chapter Five, at Bombardas. The Russian mountains having been exhausted, they began to think about dinner, and the radiant party of eight, somewhat weary at last, became stranded in Bombardas Public House, a branch establishment which had been set up in the Champs Elysees by that famous restaurant keeper Bombarda, whose sign could then be seen in the Rue de Rivoli near Delorme Alley, a large but ugly room with an alcove and a bed at the end they had been obliged to put up with this accommodation in view of the sunday crowd two windows whence they could survey beyond the elms the quay and the river a magnificent august sunlight lightly touching the panes two tables upon one of them a triumphant mountain of bouquets mingled with the hats of men and women at the other end four couples seated round a merry confusion of platters dishes glasses and bottles jugs of beer mingled with flasks of wine, very little order on the table, some disorder beneath it. They made beneath the table a noise, a clatter of the feet that was abominable, says Moliere. This was the state which the shepherd idol, begun at five o'clock in the morning, had reached at half-past four in the afternoon. The sun was setting, their appetites were satisfied. The Champs-Élysées, filled with sunshine and with people, were nothing but light and dust, the two things of which glory is composed. The horses of Marly, those neighing marbles, were prancing in a cloud of gold. Carriages were going and coming. A squadron of magnificent bodyguards, with their clarions at their head, were descending the avenue de Nuilly. The white flag, showing faintly rosy in the setting sun, floated over the dome of the Tuileries. The Place de la Concorde, which had become the Place Louis XV once more, was choked with happy promenaders. Many wore the silver fleur-de-lis suspended from the white-watered ribbon, which had not yet wholly disappeared from the buttonholes in the year 1817. Here and there choruses of little girls threw to the winds, amid the passers-by, who formed into circles and applauded. The then-celebrated Bourbon air, which was destined to strike the hundred days with lightning, and which had for its refrain— Rendez-nous notre père de Gand, rendez-nous notre père. Give us back our father from Ghent, give us back our father. Groups of dwellers in the suburbs, in Sunday array, sometimes even decorated with the fleur-de-lis, like the bourgeois, scattered over the large square and the Marigny square, were playing at rings and revolving on the wooden horses. Others were engaged in drinking. Some journeymen printers had on paper cups. Their laughter was audible. Everything was radiant. It was a time of undisputed peace and profound royalist security. It was the epoch when a special and private report of Chief of Police Angelet to the King on the subject of the suburbs of Paris terminated with these lines. Taking all things into consideration, sire, there is nothing to be feared from these people. They are as heedless and as indolent as cats. The population is restless in the provinces. It is not in Paris. These are very pretty men, sire, 
It would take all of two of them to make one of your grenadiers. There is nothing to be feared on the part of the populace of Paris, the capital. It is remarkable that the stature of this population should have diminished in the last fifty years, and the populace of the suburbs is still more puny than at the time of the Revolution. It is not dangerous. In short, it is an amiable rabble. Prefects of the police do not deem it possible that a cat can transform itself into a lion. That does happen, however, and in that lies the miracle wrought by the populace of Paris. Moreover, the cat, so despised by Count Angelet, possessed the esteem of the republics of old. In their eyes it was liberty incarnate, and as though to serve as pendant to Minerva Aptera of the Piraeus, there stood on the public square in Corinth the colossal bronze figure of a cat. The ingenious police of the Restoration held the populace of Paris in two rose-coloured alight. It is not so much of an amiable rabble as it is thought. The Parisian is to the Frenchman what the Athenian was to the Greek. No one sleeps more soundly than he. No one is more frankly frivolous and lazy than he. No one can better assume the air of forgetfulness. Let him not be trusted nevertheless. He is ready for any sort of cool deed. But when there is glory at the end of it, he is worthy of admiration in every sort of fury. Give him a pike, he will produce the 10th of August. Give him a gun, you will have Austerlitz. He is Napoleon's stay and Danton's resource. Is it a question of country? He enlists. Is it a question of liberty? He tears up the pavements. Beware. His hair, filled with wrath, is epic. His blouse drapes itself like the folds of a clamis. Take care. He will make of the first rue grenatat which comes to hand Caudine Forks. When the hour strikes, this man of the faubourgs will grow in stature. This little man will arise, and his gaze will be terrible, and his breath will become a tempest, and there will issue forth from that slender chest enough wind to disarrange the folds of the Alps. It is thanks to the suburban man of Paris that the revolution, mixed with arms, conquers Europe. He sings. It is his delight. Proportion his song to his nature, and you will see. As long as he has for his refrain nothing but Le Carmagnole, he only overthrows Louis the Sixteenth. Make him sing the Marseillaise, and he will free the world. This note, jotted down on the margin of Angelet's report, will return to our four couples. The dinner, as we have said, was drawing to its close. End of Book 3, Chapter 5 Recording by Sarah Williams, Germantown, Maryland